Brother Chairman and our dear brethren and sisters and our Lord Jesus Christ and our dear young people, for James has not yet finished with us with respect to matters of the tongue because almost all of chapter 4 is still devoted to his very potent and searching exhortations about the tongue. There are some matters that are different from that that he deals with in this chapter and we do propose to highlight some of them but it's still generally under the heading of the power of the tongue. And so as we go into chapter 4 we read in verse 1 From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts at war in your members? Isn't it remarkable, brethren and sisters, that we should be talking about those sorts of things after we've just had an exhortation of the two laws to which we are subject? And what that really means is that though we have a strong desire and a fervent love for those things that are of the spirit of the law of Christ, we are yet bound by... The, the law of the sin and death of sin and death. I read an article a few years ago, brothers and sisters, by a brother at the time of the Renunciationist Division in the old Christadelphia, and it was printed. I think it's in 1873. And he had a little article about the law of sin and death, and he said, really, it's talking about not something that is a rule of conduct that's made obligatory, he said the law of sin and death, the same as the law of the spirit of life in Christ, is really a process. It's the mode of the operation of a force. And we don't very often think of a law like that. And we run into difficulty when we talk about the law of sin and death. It's perhaps better to see it as the process of sin and death. And it's the process of the spirit of life in Christ. So that they are active workings that are going on. And we must repudiate the one so that the other one may have free course among us and be glorified. So Paul says, or rather James says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? And when he talks about wars and fightings among us, brethren and sisters, he really is talking about those things. He really is talking about wars of words and ideas. He is, of course, not talking about literal fightings and literal wars that use other than the brain. And so when we look at this word wars, we are struck to find out that it is the Greek word polemos. And again, I may not be saying that correctly, but it's spelled P-O-L-E-M-O-S. And I'm sure that most of us can see that it is the word from which we get our English word polemics. And so when you go into an English dictionary and you find out what this word polemics means, it means the art of disputation, especially in theology. 
Now that's an English dictionary meaning for this word. It's not the Greek meaning of this word. But I am sure, brethren and sisters, that we can see the same things coming out in the Greek meaning of this word, which is said to be to bustle, to have warfare, to have a single encounter or a series of encounters. Now here is where the man of the flesh has got ample room to move. And here is where a man of the spirit has got very little room to move. It goes back to what we saw in John chapter 5 last night, brethren and sisters, that when it's only my opinion as against yours, they are just as good as one another's. And we've got ample room to move. But when God says something, there's no room to move. And it's like that, brethren and sisters, in ecclesial life. I wonder how many times it has ever occurred that maybe in an arranging brothers meeting, maybe at the business meeting, maybe from a platform like we're engaged now and you get a little piece of a letter read out. And the letter might be highly condemnatory of something. And the letter may be conveying the idea that we are highly condemnatory of such thing. But isolated from the prologue and the epilogue, you can make anything you like about it. And it's been done before that brethren who have written in condemnation of a certain thing have had a part of their letter quoted and it turns out that that's what they believe when you don't read the rest of the letter. How is it, brethren and sisters, that there come wars and fightings among us? And as we look at the meaning of that word, the art of disputation, where would we learn that? Where would we learn the art of disputation? Where would we learn, brethren and sisters, to write like lawyers and like legal practitioners so that you would have to weigh every syllable of everything that's ever written? and not be able to go through something and treat with magnanimity, as Brother Robert says, some words, some things that we hear, some things that we see, and we aren't able to overlook them. We have got to be in these sorts of situations, brethren and sisters, magnanimous, maybe not for a person, because we are told not to have respect of persons, but certainly we are to be magnanimous for the truth and we are to be sympathetic to those who may have fallen into wrong. Sympathetic in our dealings with them, though certainly not sympathetic in what has been done wrong. And so, brothers and sisters, the art of polemics is out the door. From whence come these arts of polemics and fightings among us? Come they, says James, even not from your lusts that war in your members? Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that polemics, wars and fightings come because the old man is alive and well? And this is not in any way whatsoever to compromise, as Brother Tony has been telling us, it is not to compromise with sin. It is not to compromise with sin in any of the ways in which it comes across our bowels. 
It is to call truth, truth, and error, error. It is to give our yea and our nay because any more than this comes of evil. And that's if we get into doubtful disputations, brethren and sisters, and start to rattle around with polemics that the lust of man is very easily brought to the fore. Now you think of it this way, please, brethren and sisters. There's somebody we know who's done something wrong. What right have we to charge and to judge another man's servant? (coughs) What right have we to charge and to judge another man's servant? We have no right. But we do have a responsibility, brothers and sisters, to ask and to ask if what we have heard is so. That's very different. Because when the judge of all the earth comes to us, brothers and sisters, he will not say to us, I saw you do something on such and such a day. He will say, remember such and such an occasion? What was it that you did there? Because it is by our words that we will be justified and it is by our words that we will be condemned and being drawn out of our own mouth when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, brethren and sisters, will be words that we know are true and that the judge of all the earth will know are true. And he will, by a series of questions, get us to condemn ourselves. We have no right to condemn another man's servant, but we have an awesome responsibility that in any situation which we have heard that is wrong, as the people under the law were told, make diligent inquisition. But that doesn't mean to go around to a multitude of people who you might think is unfavourable to the person and gather up a dossier and present it to him. That means, brethren and sisters, go and ask him. Go and find out from him whether it is true or not. And from whence come wars and fightings among us? They come from our own lusts that war in our members. And we perpetuate them, we keep them going and going and going because we refuse to do what the Bible says. And if we were always honest with what the Bible says, brethren and sisters, matters would not take as long to deal with as they do. Yes, I know in cases there are extenuating circumstances. Some cases are harder to deal with than others but it does not relieve our responsibility to honour God's arrangements. Because if we want to honour God's arrangements, brothers and sisters, there's only one way to do it. If we want to honour him, we honour his arrangements. And we are therefore extremely careful that in every step of the process, our mind is to honour him. Our mind is to make sure that his claims are fulfilled first and foremost. And it's not what we might think, it's not what he might be hurt by or she might be hurt by, it's what he tells us. 
And when we follow those arrangements, brethren and sisters, there will spring into being a confidence between each other. Because every party involved will see that they've got no selfish interests to serve. And all the parties will be able to perceive that it's not men that are in our sights, it's facts and principles. And when we remain with the facts and the principles as we know them and as we find them out by asking the person concerned and it doesn't matter, brothers and sisters, if he's devious. It doesn't matter if he's devious. It only matters that we do the right thing because that's how we're going to honour our God. And when he sees that we have no other interests at heart than the truth and the honour of God, we may get somewhere. We may not. But it really doesn't matter what the outcome is as far as we're concerned, brethren and sisters, because if we faithfully do the right thing, there is a person, there are two persons, who will actually handle the consequences. And that's the Father and the Son. If we do the wrong thing, we are going to handle the consequences. Because if we do not follow out explicitly his commandments, then he says, I'm free of the responsibility. Just like we act with our children, brethren and sisters. And we tell them that if they operate within these precincts, if they don't go outside of these boundaries, we will take care of their welfare. But if they go outside, it's on their head. And even then, we still want to get them back within the precincts, don't we? And that's how our Father operates, brethren and sisters. And that is the dire warning that James is giving to us in this very first verse verse of James chapter 4. And he goes on to reinforce it by saying, Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have. And ye cannot obtain. Ye fight and war. Yet ye have not, because ye ask not. And ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Brethren and sisters, when we become lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, and we really do not have the honour of God at heart in everything that we do, that's the only other course to take. And if we have any other objective than to deal faithfully with the principles and facts at hand, and if it slides off, brethren and sisters, from the facts and the principles to men, you know what we will have? We will have the germ of murder. And Christ says... That's a false thing. That's something wrong. We cannot afford to have that, brethren and sisters, in whatever the dealings may be. Because the writer James tells us that these things come of our own lusts. 
They do not come because we've got care for the brother or the sister or the young person or whoever it may be. They come because there's a germ that works within us that we have not allowed the word of God to control. And it's a very serious thing, brothers and sisters, is any form whatever of controversy in our lives. You know, brothers and sisters, it's true that men of controversy have contributed more to the world than anybody else. And I mean good. Because the controversy itself is not evil. The controversy itself may be very necessary. And there's been men all down through the ages who have said certain things and who have embarked on a course of experimentation against which the world have have risen up and said, no, don't go down that course. And a few years later, they start to say, well, he really took us somewhere, didn't he, that fellow? He He really found something that the world has not seen before. But brethren and sisters, if we want to be men or women of controversy, we will never be in the kingdom of God. When was our Lord Jesus Christ outside the range of controversy? When was Brother Thomas ever ever outside the range of controversy? When was Brother Roberts ever freed from the yoke of controversy? And the same answer can be given for all those three men when they fell into the article of death. That's when they were freed from it. Do you think they ever wanted it? And this is what Brother Robert said. He said, All the evils of controversy are transient. All the benefits are permanent. All the evils of controversy are transient. All the benefits are are permanent. Why would he say that? Because he could see, brethren and sisters, with a little bit of godly wisdom, that there is nothing ever accomplished without it. It's what Brother Roberts used to say, out of evil and by means of it, God is working a great amount of good. And that does not mean to say, brothers and sisters, that Brother Roberts or any of those people who we've quoted ever sought for controversy. But when it came across their bowels, they dealt with it according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And they saw that they were fighting not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And they knew that invested in every human brain are those principles, the prince of the power of the air, and how important it is, brothers and sisters, that we should bring under control the prince of the power of the air as it resides in every one of us and bring it into subjection 
to the obedience of the thoughts of Christ. And in no more important area is this so than when we have ecclesial or brother-to-brother controversy. And it's then, it is then, brethren and sisters, when the real brother or the real sister is shown, isn't it? While everybody's getting on well together, there's no need to draw on the spirit of life in Christ. But as soon as division in some way or another comes, that's when we're put to the test. That's when the real us shows clearly. And it's how we deal with them, brethren and sisters, that is going to make the difference between death and life when the judge of all the earth comes again. It's a very serious matter. The smallest little controversy that arises is a serious matter, brethren and sisters, because the God that gave to us the Bible has got one mind and he is not a promoter of division. He is a promoter of unity. And there's only one way that that unity can come and we won't engineer it, we won't manufacture it, we won't make it. It'll come when we're all in subjection to that word and it will come in no other way. You can't write a letter to your neighbouring ecclesia and say, well look, if you just drop off your whatever and we'll drop off ours, We won't have that controversy anymore. Then we'll have unity. We will not have unity, brethren and sisters. We may have a kind of uniformity, but we will not have the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit is single-mindedness. And it's single-mindedness because we have been in subjection to every part of the Word. And unity is not something we engineer. It's a flowing down. It's a benefit that comes from heaven because people have sought it in the right way. And when we seek it in the right way, brothers and sisters, it will come. It's just like God unleashing the drops from the clouds. And it is as easy for him to rain down unity as it is is for him to rain down showers and bless the earth. But he will not release it unless... We deserve it. It's like every gift from God, brethren and sisters. You know, James said in chapter 1 and verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness nor shadow cast by turning. And when he talks about good gifts, brothers and sisters, he he talks about the way in which God rains down from heaven and brings up the sun on the just and the unjust alike. And when he talks about perfect gifts, he talks about his people. He talks about the way in which God rains down benefits upon them. And they are very special benefits and one of the grandest of them all is the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. And we've got to keep it in the bond of peace when we get it. And the way we will keep it is the same way we got it. 
is to not swerve aside and to give way to the law of sin and death in our members. It's to keep it in subjection. And when James says, brethren and sisters, in verse 2, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, he uses a word which actually means to be a murderer. He's not, spiritualizing, he's not trying to spiritualise something away. He's not trying to be dramatic either. He's trying to say to us, brethren and sisters, that our attitude in controversy is going to be life or death to the person with whom we're having the controversy. And that if we allow ourselves any scope outside of the law of the spirit of life in Christ, something else is going to arrive, arise and there's going to be bitterness and envy and hatred the very germs of murder in our heart. And we know that's true, don't we? We know it's true, brothers and sisters, because we will never always be able to escape it. But we always need to be aware of it so that we might do our very best to allow this word of God to keep our minds focused on facts and principles, not men. Because we can't put our trust in men. We can't put our trust in princes. We can't put our trust in anybody except the living God and his son and the word that they have given to us. We've got to have the utmost confidence in that so that we might progress in our life in the truth. Now it seems a very strange turn in verse 4 of James chapter 4. It seems a very strange turn for James to just be talking about those sorts of things and then he turns around and in a rather vehement fashion he says, Ye adulteresses! Ye adulteresses! And he doesn't use the term adulterers and adulteresses because as Brother Tony showed us, brothers and sisters, from Romans chapter 7, the person in there was told that they cannot have two husbands living at one time. And that if the law of the spirit of life in Christ is not the dominating factor to the best exclusion that we can make of the law of sin and death, if the law of the spirit of Christ is not the dominating factor in our life, we've got two husbands. And so when the law of sin and death, the process of sin and death, is allowed to have free reign in us, we can only be one thing, and that's an adulteress. When it has free reign, we are an adulteress. And the passage of scripture which James is quoting from, brothers and sisters, is very obviously Numbers chapter 5. Remember, in the law, if anybody was found to commit the sin of adultery, then the two persons were taken out and stoned, weren't they? There were some very slight circumstances that could be applied to that sort of thing if it was an unmarried young girl. But generally speaking, the sin of adultery was punished by the two persons being taken out and stoned. But there's another case, brethren and sisters, that is outlined for us in Numbers chapter 5 which suffers a different fate. 
and we'd like to turn back to Numbers chapter 5 to see what the Apostle Paul, uh, rather the writer James is talking about in this section of his exhortations to us. Numbers chapter 5 we know is a case that is clearly laid out to us and in verse 11 of chapter 5 of Numbers we read that Yahweh spake unto Moses saying Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him and a man lie with her carnally and it be hid from the eyes of her husband and be kept close and she is defiled and there's no witness against her neither is there any fruit as a result you see what he's saying brothers and sisters he's saying here is an adulterous connection here is an adulterous union and it is made without any telltale without any telltale and the two persons involved have not been honest enough to come forward and to say we've been involved in serious sin. So you notice the specific clause there? If a man's wife go aside and commit a trespass unto him, against him, it doesn't say if a woman's husband go aside. It only says if a man's wife go aside. And this would almost seem, would it not sisters, that God has got something against sisters and he hasn't got the same thing against brethren? Not saying that at all brethren and sisters. Because there are very special conditions under which this law came into operation. And so the husband, he just detects a slight difference in attitude of his wife towards him. And he says, I wonder what's wrong. There just seems to be something not quite the same as it was a little while ago. He has got a suspicion and he's got no more than a suspicion. And so he is able to take his wife to the priest and the priest takes her into the holy place of the tabernacle. And what the priest now does there, after her husband has brought for her a certainly prescribed offering, which is a meal offering, and then we read of what the priest does. Verse 18. The priest shall set the woman before Yahweh. The priest shall set the woman before Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, here is a judgment going to be made by somebody and by the only person who can enter into the innermost thoughts and intentions and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And now the priest, that is the representative of Yahweh, takes the woman in and he sets her before Yahweh. <clears throat> Can you imagine, brethren and sisters, 
Just imagine for a moment if we were that woman and we know the result of this process. We know if we're innocent or guilty but nobody else does. The priest doesn't know, the husband doesn't know but we know. How would you feel, brethren and sisters, if you were that woman and you were guilty? And how would you feel if we were that woman and we were innocent? Because remember, the husband has only got a suspicion. He does not know as to whether his wife has gone aside and committed trespass against him or not. Sisters, when we come before the presence of Yahweh, sisters, you all wear a head covering. Why? When this woman sat down before Yahweh, the priest took off her head covering. And that is a great shame to the woman. She is being brought down and down and down and down and down and she knows if she's innocent or guilty and it's only she as far as humankind are concerned that, is, that does know then it says that he puts the offering of memorial in the hand of the woman as she sits before Yahweh and this offering brethren and sisters happens to be called a jealousy offering. Because what has happened in the mind of her husband is that he has got a suspicion that his jealousy is well founded. He doesn't know, but he thinks there's a cause for jealousy. Now brother, are you jealous over your wife? Sister, are you jealous over your husband? Brother, are you jealous over your husband? Uh, over your wife? Because if you're not, you're not her wife, her husband. Jealousy, brothers and sisters, is the highest form of love that anybody can ever attain to. And it is true that it is more likely to be seen in the male of the species than the woman. And Yahweh is a jealous ale. And he's not jealous, brethren and sisters, because he wants to do damage to the object of the jealousy. He's jealous because he wants the very best for the object of his jealousy. And that's how a husband should operate toward his wife. He will love her with the highest form of love that he can attain to. And he will be jealous over every movement she makes. Aren't you like that, husband? Brethren and sisters, let's see what happens to this woman. She's sitting there with her head uncovered. She knows whether she's done the thing or not. And now the priest is going to charge her by an oath. 
and she is now under the oath of Yahweh, sitting in the presence of Yahweh, that she is going to tell the truth. It's the judgment seat of Christ, brethren and sisters. And that woman is not an individual wife of some certain husband in Israel. It's the bride of Christ. And it's the bride of Christ being utterly and totally stripped of every form of veneer that we operate under so that everything that is hid will be manifest in the day of account. And therefore, brethren and sisters, if she's going to be found out to be an adulteress, she is going to be sent out into her people and she is going to have the awful consequences of her secret sin blown out toward all of the people of Israel. And she's going to walk around in Israel with all the symptoms of pregnancy. Her belly will swell and her thigh will rot as sin enters into her very innermost being and it's going to cause her to die a terrible death. It's a figure, brethren and sisters, is it not, of those who are rejected who will depart from Christ and be cursed and they will go into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And brethren and sisters, it is telling us that adultery is very, rather to be an adulteress is very easy to hide. We all know, brothers and sisters, do we not, that there are some areas of our life that we want to keep intact. We don't tell anybody else about them. We don't let it out. We don't say, oh, you could condemn this or you could condemn that. Because what we're doing, brothers and sisters, is secretly doing something that we know is affecting our brain, our mind. And we let things enter into our brains that are going to confuse us, that are going to dispossess the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And we enjoy them. And so we keep on with them. Brothers and sisters, what does James say? He adulteresses. He adulteresses because when we do that, we are acting as though we've got two husbands. We are living a lie. We are saying to our husband, we can serve God and mammon. You've got it all wrong. We can have two husbands. We're free to have a husband that's dead and go and marry somebody else. Or rather, a husband that's alive and go to marry somebody else. We're quite free to do that, we're saying. The Apostle Paul says, you can't have one. You can't run with the hares and hunt with the hounds. We cannot possibly afford to do that in our lives, brothers and sisters. And so when we come back into James, he makes it very, very clear that we have got a choice in these matters. 
and that we'd better make it well. We'd better settle the matter very, very quickly because when he says, ye adulteresses, ye adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you know that friendship with the, with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so, brothers and sisters, this writing here hey, takes us right back into Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? Because of that little word enmity. It comes right out of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And God said, I will put enmity. It's not us that places the enmity, brethren and sisters. It's not us that marks the bounds. It's not us that shifts the goals. It's not us that sets up whatever. It's God who placed the enmity there. Who are we to remove it? And therefore, brethren and sisters, we are to understand that there really only is black and white. There's no shades of grey. There might be in our view of things but there's no shades of grey. We won't get into the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, by the skin on our teeth. We'll be either in there or we'll be out. We will either be found to have been serving God or serving mammon. There won't be another class that, oh, I wasn't sure what to do with. There'll only be those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are not. And brothers and sisters, secret sin is our biggest enemy because it goes on up here, it doesn't go on here. And it's thinking against which God is opposed because it's a thinking that will promote the acting. And the enmity that God placed in the beginning was because of the way the serpent thought and the way he had told his people to think. And slowly but surely under the inspiration of the seduction of the serpent the woman wasn't very sure anymore and it all got mixed up. And when it gets mixed up, brothers and sisters, it's very hard to determine where we ought to go. It's got to be clarity. There's got to be a certain voice. There's got to be a very certain sound. And the very certain sound here is, brothers and sisters, whosoever is the friend of the world is at enmity with God. Just a little thought to conclude. John chapter 3, verse 16. You know what it says, you don't have to turn it up, but it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Turn over, brethren and sisters, to the second of John, chapter 2. In the second of John, chapter 2, and at verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And John chapter 3 verse 16 says, God so loved the world. 
It must be a different thing that is meant in John chapter 3 verse 16 and this verse here. Because if God loves the world of John 3.16 and he tells us to love not the world, it can't be the same thing. And the world of John 3 verse 16, brethren and sisters, is according to the writings of Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts, they both say it, they say the world there is all the faithful from Adam to the end of the thousand years. That's the world God loved. That's the world God loves. That's the world that he is working to formulate and conclude. And that world, brethren and sisters, is qualified in John chapter 3 and verse 16 by saying, God so loved the world that whosoever believeth. That's the world he loves. Brothers and sisters, all other men pass him by. He shows his love to them in raining down upon them the rain from heaven and the sun every day. But that's a very different form of love to which he gives those who are proposed to marry him. And therefore, we've got to be at enmity with the world. We don't court its smiles. We don't marry with it. We don't plough with an ox and an ass together. We don't fabricate things with it in any of its forms, whether it's political or religious or civil. We cannot join with them. Not because some of them might not be nice people, brothers and sisters, but because they just happen to be at enmity with God. Because they don't value the things that we've learned to value. We cannot possibly join with them. The world is not worthy of us if we are of the spirit of life in Christ. And we will never want to be found to be honoured in their estimation. Because to be found honoured in their estimation, brothers and sisters, we know that the world loves its own. And the world only loves its own. And if we're honoured by it, it's proof that we are of them. Because there's only two ways. There's only the love of God and love of the world. There's only at oneness with God and at enmity with him. Brethren and sisters, the earnest exhortation with which James leaves us with is this, that if we are not awake to humility and suffer ourselves all the consequences of that in today's society, so what? Our brethren before have been sewn up in in skins of animals. They've been thrown to lion's dens. They've had all sorts of things done to them. We have not yet resisted unto blood in our strife against sin, brethren and sisters. So what? There's only one answer and that is to be in complete subjection to the law of the spirit of life in Christ so that at the appropriate time, at the dawn of a new day, brothers and sisters, the law of sin and death will be totally removed from our being and we will then only experience that righteousness that comes because of faith. And it is a gift from God with a mind that can no longer do secret or any other kind of sins, but it will only know the spirit of life in Christ.